0: In 1970, Congress passed the Organized Crime Control Act to fight mob power. And one year later, saw the beginning of the Federal Witness Protection Program. This is a way to protect high-profile witnesses who would give key testimony, put away bigger criminals. Most of these witnesses were criminals themselves. They're given immunity and protection as long as their testimony could put away a, a bigger fish. And since its inception... This program has served about 8,500 witnesses and 9,900 family members. Not one of them has been harmed, but the security comes through radical measures. Witnesses have to completely end life as they know it and start over. Every aspect of their old life is wiped out and restarted. Their old name is gone. Their driver's license is gone. Their social security number, credit cards, their birthday is no longer their birthday. Their identity is completely remade. In addition, they have to relocate. They move to a town far away. They're given a new job, maybe something they've never done before. New house, new furniture, new clothes. Anything that could identify them from their past needs to change. They probably need to pick a new favorite sports team. And yeah, they also have to leave their criminal life behind. Because 95% of the witnesses in this program were criminals. But whatever illicit behavior they were involved in has to be part of their past as well. They've been granted immunity, and if they're to be protected, they have to begin a new, honest life. Now, the parallels aren't perfect, but life under the Witness Protection Program provides some pretty helpful illustrations for understanding the Christian life. And we're studying through the book of Colossians, and you can open your Bibles now to Colossians chapter 3. We've been learning about the essence of the Christian life, how are we supposed to live as Christians? That's like such a simple question, but it is a vastly important question. In all other world religions, it's about striving hard to become something. You're working really hard to become good or righteous or holy, that you might earn God's favor and get into the afterlife. It's all about self-effort. That's completely rejected by the Bible. Earning God's favor—it's not even possible. As we're thoroughly just defiled and depraved and corrupt, we're under God's just judgment. Nothing we can do. Who can change their nature or pay their infinite debt? No one. But God, in His love, did something for us. He sent Christ to pay that debt for us, to raise us to new life. And God offers everything we need just as a gift. He gives us salvation by grace through faith, He declares us forgiven. He declares us righteous. And that's all made possible, not by our works, but by Christ's finished work, his work alone. And by faith, we're united to him. And as we've been learning in Colossians, that means we've died with him. We've been buried with him. We've been raised with him, been seated with him in the heavenly places. This is new life in Christ. And it forms the basis for how we are to live. And now as Christians, followers of Christ, we are to, to live a certain way. We're to live righteously, yes. But that's not because we're trying to become righteous. It's because we've already been declared righteous. We've been made righteous in God's eyes. We've been given a new heart with a new nature that loves righteousness. So the way we live is just, just the outflowing of our new identity. And it's kind of abstract to think about, but think about the witness protection program. If you enter that program, it starts with this this instantaneous legal change. Legally, your old name, your old life are gone. And legally, you're, you're given a new name, a new identity. And positionally, in the eyes of the state, that's who you are now. You may not feel that way right away. It might take a little time to adjust to your new identity. But that's who you are. And it's up to you to live accordingly. Your daily practice, your job, your habits, your hobbies. They all should be guided and dictated by your new identity. And likewise, when you come to Christ by faith, you die. Your old self dies. Who you were, that person before Christ, is gone. A new self emerges. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And other legal changes take place. Jesus gives you a new name, Christian, follower of Christ. He gives you a new vocation. You're his witnesses to the ends of the earth. He gives you a new status, sons and daughters of God. And he gives you a new position. You are forgiven. You are perfectly righteous. You have a completely new identity in Christ when you come under his protection as all by faith. In God's eyes, all these changes are true legally, but by God's authority, that's who you are now. This is how God sees you. Now, right away, you might not feel entirely different, may take time to adjust to this new identity in Christ. But for the rest of your life, you're called to just live out that new identity. You're called to become and practice who you are in position And have no fear because the same Jesus who made all this possible also promises to empower you and enable you to live out this new life by his Holy Spirit. You know, one day, all of our newness in Christ, it will extend to our bodies. It will extend to our location, heaven. But for now, while we're in these bodies and on this earth, God is pleased as we live out our heavenly citizenship, which we presently Have And all this we learned last time in in the beginning of Colossians 3, 1 through 4, where he, Paul transitions to really start talking about the essence of Christian living. Let's just read that again to be reminded. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. He says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God and Christ who is our life is revealed. Then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now the next passage, our our text for today flows right out of this where Paul moves on from the foundation of Christian living to the ethics of Christian living. Now that we have a new identity we should be different. We'll go, how exactly? How should we live? What should we do? What should we no longer do? What, what are the ethics of this new Christian life? We're going to get our first dose of it as we go through Colossians here, verses 5 through 7. Let's read that now for today. Colossians 3, 5 through 7. It says right after, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them, you also once walked when you were living in them. You notice verse five begins with that transition. Therefore, again, what he's, he's going to say here about Christian ethics comes right out of what he said in verses one through four. That We have a heavenly life right now in Christ. And so we should be very eager to expel all the behavior in our life that, that doesn't accord with heaven. We should happily shed our old ways. It's like a lifetime gang member who gets out of prison. He sees the error of his, his old ways. He wants to reform and start a new life. He wants that, that old chapter just entirely dead and gone. So he'd be very enthusiastic to just shed all the aspects of his old life from him. His clothes his friends, his neighborhood, his his hobbies, his crimes. He might even remove some tattoos. You'd just be passionate about ending his old way of life. And the same should be true of us. But you know, the word picture here in verse five is stronger than just shedding some old habits. The picture in verse five is, is to kill. He says, You must kill your sin. See in verse 5, it says, Consider as dead. That comes from just one word in the Greek, necrao, from necros, meaning death. It's a present, active imperative. So, this is a standing command to put to death, to kill your sin. When we get sick and you're prescribed antibiotics to fight your infection, do you ever feel bad? I mean, you're slaughtering billions of bacteria, <laughs> they're living organisms. Did you ever feel bad? No, no one ever feels bad because the bacteria are bad. They're trying to kill you. They will kill you unless you kill them. It's a kill or be killed situation. So you happily take your antibiotics. Well, in reality, though, you should regard sin the the same way. Sin is especially powerful and deceitful. It resides within us and and dupes many people into loving it, coddling it, guarding it. But woe unto that person, like Proverbs 6.27 says, can a man hold fire in his bosom and his clothes not get burned? But when you come to your senses, you you see sin for what it is. It's the enemy of your soul. It's trying to kill you. So you you need to kill it. And in one sense, listen, your sin will kill you. It's going to take you to the grave. We know that sin is the explanation of, of death in this world. God made this world perfect, free from death. But as sin and rebellion entered, so did death. For the wages of sin is death. It's referring to a physical and a spiritual separation from God. That's what death is. And we are still under the curse. And so all of us are going to taste that first death. But the good news for those in Christ is that although sin will take you to the grave, it can no longer keep you there. We too will rise physically to everlasting life. The point he's making here though, is that since we already have risen spiritually to everlasting life, well, we should just want to put away all the remaining vestiges of sin in our lives because we don't want to let sin keep stealing and robbing us of life right now. This gets back to the, the paradox of Christian living. You know, back in verse three, he said, you have died. You have already died to sin. But now in verse five, he's saying, put to death your sin. And so you might wonder like, wait, which one is it? Are we already dead to sin? Or are we supposed to like put actively put to death our sin? W- which is it? The answer is both. But let's clarify just one more time, because this is an important concept you, you need to get. In Christ, at the moment of salvation, we die. You are dead to sin's penalty. We're completely de- delivered from that eternal death and separation from God. That, that's a present spiritual reality. We, we've died to sin's penalty. But we've not fully died to sin's presence. It is still present within us. Where? In our earthly bodies. Some oldness remains. And this ever-present sin can wield a type of power over us. It can influence us and lead us back into unrighteousness. But because we have ultimate victory over sin in Christ, we're called to overcome the the presence and the power of sin in our daily lives. And once again, Paul just puts this best over in Romans 6, 5 through 7. You can listen along. He says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. See, our union with Christ by faith puts us into a new relationship with our own sin. It's still present within us but we're no longer enslaved to it. Instead, now we're enslaved to righteousness and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to be different. It's on this basis that we are to wage war and kill the remnants of sin in our lives. And while we wait for the redemption of our bodies, we are to kill the sin that attacks our flesh, which is weak and easily taken captive. And the old term for this, by the way, you hear among the Puritans was mortification. You have to mortify or put to death your sin. Now you see in verse 5, though, specifically, he says you must put to death the members of your earthly body. Or for members, literally refers to body parts, arms, legs, eyes. It's like Jesus said, if your eye causes you to stumble, it's better to tear it out, throw it from you better to lose one part of your body than for your, your whole body to be thrown into hell, Jesus said in Matthew 5.29. Of course, Jesus and Paul are both using a figure of speech. They're not talking about our actual body parts, but the sins and the deeds of the flesh that are so closely associated with the members of our body. This is talking about the sinful practices and attitudes that, that dominated our old lives. But these were poisoning us, so now we have one recourse and it's just to cut them off. The military advances before the civil war led to more vicious battle injuries like shattered bones and doctors were not prepared to treat such wounds and nor could they just with the flood of patients, the inundation of the wounded. And furthermore, they didn't know much about sanitation. So for example, they would use and reuse bandages from one patient to the next without washing them. And so it was just a sad reality of the time that if you got injured, if one of your limbs was injured in battle, it's, it's going to get infected, gangrene will form, and you will die. And so these doctors really just had one option, and that was amputation. About 75% of all medical operations during the Civil War were amputations. And as sad as that sounds, it's, it's still better than losing your life. And Christians today need to get just as radical when it comes to dealing with their sin. It's in you and it can spread. It can infect them. It can lead you away. It can harden you with deceitfulness. You had better just cut it off and kill it. So this is the picture, the word picture here in verse 5, to kill your sin. The rest is all practical. You have this main command in verse 5, stemming out of 1 through 4. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sin. Or as the HCSB puts it, put to death what belongs to your worldly nature. That's what we must do. If we are to live in the freedom from sin that that Christ secured for us. But if we're actually going to do this, it would be really helpful to know the, the what, the why, and the how just like some of the practicals, the what, the why, and the how of killing sin. So let's cover these now. Let's start with first, what sins you must kill. What sins you must kill. And Paul gives two sample lists of sins to mortify, one in verse 5 with the other in verse 8. We'll save verse 8 for next time. Why Paul mentions these, we don't know. Maybe it was part of the background in Colossians. Either way, they're not exhaustive, but they are representative, and they're fairly universal. They're worth considering because we certainly need to mortify these same sins in our own lives. So let's go through this first list in verse five, which entirely deals with sexual sin. Look at verse five. This is therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Here Paul lists five sins in a clear order from outward manifestation to, to uh, the inward desire. He starts with immorality, which is that Greek word "porneia," from which we get the word pornography. But this word in Greek refers to any form of sexual sin. Sexual relations were created by God, to be good within the covenant of marriage. But this term refers to any and all sexual relations outside the covenant of marriage. The second term is impurity. This is the Greek word for cleanness with a negative in front. So it is uncleanness, that which is defiling, polluting, corrupting. This term is nearly a twin with the first, immorality. Sexual sins are all very serious to God. It's not surprising that this pair of terms shows up first in the list of vices Paul gives in Galatians 5.19, where he says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality and impurity. You add to that these next two terms, passion and evil desire. The word for passion in the Greek is pathos. The word for desire is epithumia. And both of these have a good sense There's a good type of passion. There's a good type of strong desire. I mean, I want research scientists who are passionate about finding a cure for cancer. Don't you? And I want police officers who have a strong desire to uphold justice. Don't you? There's there's a good type of passion and desire. But they can be evil as well. And that's clearly how they're being used here. Paul outright says this is not just strong desire. This is evil desire desire. And when used negatively, these terms have a sexual connotation. And they're very similar in meaning. We're talking lustful passions. And these are strong desires or cravings that start in the mind, but they're let loose in the body. And they don't rest until they're satisfied. Now, all four of these terms so far come together in a key passage, 1 Thessalonians 4. If you're in your Bible, just turn the page to the right like one or two pages, and you'll find 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And let's look at this passage where all these terms come together. 1 Thessalonians 4, look at verse 3. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, you abstain from sexual morality. It doesn't get much clearer than that. I mean, do you want to know God's will? Well, it does not include any sexual morality. That's sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, pornography, adultery. None of these are God's will. Verse 4, he says that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Here we have our two terms put together, lustful passion unbridled lust, it characterizes those who don't know God. It used to characterize us, but we've been made new. We are to be different. It should not characterize us any longer. We are to be vessels of honor, not dishonor. He says in verse six, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. It's a stern warning, God is not mocked those who go by the name of Christ and claim to be vessels of honor, but act in dishonor. Beware. God does not take any sin, but especially sexual sin lightly. He will judge and discipline. And then finally, verse seven, he says, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man but God who gives his spirit to you. You know, our society today is becoming more and more like that of ancient Rome, which normalized and accepted sexual morality. I mean, to the the pagan Romans, prostitution and immorality were part of their temple worship. So talk about depraved. And these young Christians though, come into Christ, rejecting Rome's, corrupt sexual ethic, it made them enemies of the state. And more and more Christians today are kind of facing that same challenge. Our society has likewise normalized immorality, impurity, homosexuality, now even transgenderism. We cannot accept these as right. That's going to put us increasingly at enmity with the world. Some churches have caved in to win the favor of the world. What does he say in verse 8? And if you reject this, you're rejecting God's will and God's morals. You're not just rejecting men. You're rejecting God who gave you his spirit. So beware and choose carefully whom you will serve. You can go back to Colossians 3 now. Immorality and impurity, passion and evil desire. These must be put off. These must be put to death. Hopefully you can see the progression though. Where do our, our outward deeds of immorality and impurity come from? Where do they start? They start in the heart. They start when passion and evil desire are allowed to run rampant in our minds and members. It's just like Jesus said in Mark seven twenty one. He said, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, and more. But back in verse 5, there's one more critical step here. I'm sure all of you can connect the dots between immoral deeds and lust. It begins with uh, an inner lust. But inner lust is not the deepest root of sexual sin. What is? Paul says in verse 5, it's greed. I know when you read this, it seems out of place. Like Paul, he just used four terms that clearly have a sexual connotation. Why is he just throwing in greed and he's talking about money now? Well, no, he's not talking about money. This greed here has nothing to do with money. This term for greed comes from combining the word pleon for more and exo to have. It means to have more, to want more, a.k.a. covetousness. And of course, when this term is applied to wealth, it refers to greed as we normally think of it in a monetary sense. But the Greeks use this term for sexual sin as well, and this then is the the deepest root for all sexual sin. It's an unchecked heart desire to have more, more than you have, more than belongs to you. But God gives us an appropriate outlet for the desires he made us with. It's again in the covenant of marriage, but in our fallen natures, we want to go outside these bounds In greed. We want more. We covet what does not belong to us. And this desire for more is the fountain out of which comes lust and evil desire. And from that comes your deeds of immorality and impurity. You know, James, the half brother of Jesus, likewise identifies these inner heart desires as the root of our sinful deeds and conflicts. Just listen to, to James 4 1 and 2, where he says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It's so important to trace all of our sinful deeds back to their originating desires. And with sexual sin, it it goes back to greed, this desire to want more than God has given you. And Paul says, he adds to this, this amounts to idolatry. You're probably also wondering like, well, how is this idolatry? Well, you worship what you serve. And this person is serving themselves. They're serving their desires above God and his desires, which are right. And that, that's the essence of idolatry. This is pretty serious. I bet most of you never thought of the sexually immoral person as a greedy idolater. But that's the real problem. And if any of you here are, are battling immoral and impure deeds, that's your deeper problem too. Greedy idolatry. You're elevating your desires to have more than God has given above all else. His will is your sanctification that you possess your vessel and honor. But your will says, no, I want my own way. I want that over there. I'm going to go take it. And you cast God's will away from you and pursue your own. Meanwhile, God's will is good. His ways our best. He only wants the best for us. And when you think about it, how much good has truly come from immorality, adultery, pornography, and so forth? Did you really think that's the path to a fuller life under God? God says, no, and I hope you too come to your senses. And with this warning in mind, it's a good place to to move on and add now the why of killing sin. We covered the what, what sins you must kill. Now, secondly, the why, why you must kill sin. Why you must kill sin. And in verses six and seven, Paul adds two reasons why you must be killing your sin. So look at verse six. He reminds us, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And scripture often includes warnings of God's judgment and wrath in connection to sin and especially sexual sin. For example, Hebrews thirteen four it says, marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. Now it's important to note that as Christians, we still sin, right? The presence of sin is still within us. And so sometimes, even though we've been saved and forgiven, we give into the desires of the flesh that remain and, and we fall. We stumble into the darkness. Well, thankfully, Jesus died on the cross to pay for all of those sins too. And if your faith in him is real, you've, you've been entirely delivered from the wrath of God. There, there's no more wrath. Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. This doesn't give us a license to sin, but it does remind us to thank God for when we do stumble and fall into the darkness, we still have a savior to turn to. And that's what the, the real believer will do. When they stumble and fall, they will repent, come to their senses, return, and be restored and live in God's ways. A true believer may stumble in the darkness, but he or she were not Live in the darkness. But things are different for both the unbeliever and the so called Christian who just lives in outright unrepentant immorality. They're just left dangling over the pit of God's eternal wrath. And those who practice such things, those who live in unrepentant immorality, the wrath of God abides on them. And this applies, he says, to all sons of disobedience. It's a term referring to those whose lives are, are marked by disobedience. That's how these people are known. They're, they're characterized. They're known just by disobeying God. And such people don't know and won't find the love of God. They're, they're under his wrath. Wrath refers to God's holy anger against all sin and evil. It's his righteous indignation. And, and don't make a mistake. It, it's righteous Sin attracts God's wrath like a, a lightning rod on a skyscraper. And it's just in God's perfect nature to strike down sin and evil. And he is just to do so. God's wrath is not capricious. It's based on his perfect will. And just don't forget, he defines right and wrong. And he defines justice and injustice. And those who persist in, as a son or, or daughter of disobedience, Well, God's wrath is is coming, and and those who persist will find it on that day. Paul adds a second warning, a second reason why you must kill your sin. Verse 7. He also says, And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. And here we're reminded: you know, we, we used to be sons of disobedience. We used to live under the wrath of God. We were no different, no better. And we we too experienced some of that hell on earth as we lived in sin and we bore in our bodies just the effects and the suffering that comes from it. You and I know what it's like to live in this unchecked sin. How many times will you keep playing with fire and getting and get burnt? Those in Christ and who, who come to their senses, who come to the light, they come to see. Their own sin for what it is. It's a serpent coiled around your neck trying to kill you, trying to take you to the grave eternally. We know it. it's not a plaything anymore. It's an enemy which must be put to death. It's a walk no longer as you once walked. One more passage just now turn backwards a few pages to Ephesians 5. Back to uh, Ephesians 5 where Paul is perfectly parallels with what he's saying here in Colossians 3, and it just reinforces what we're learning. So let's look at Ephesians 5. He says in verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We are children of God now. We are to be like him, like our father. What does that mean? Well, down to verse 3, he says, But immorality... Or any impurity or greed, must not be named among you as is proper among saints. You notice he uses the term for greed again. It's not talking about money. It's that innermost desire to have more than God has given. And that should be so far removed from us that immorality would not even come up with our name in conversation. He says down in verse 5, For this you know with certainty. That no immoral or impure person or covetous, covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You see, again, this connection between immorality and covetousness, which is idolatry. If this is who you still are, you don't have a heavenly inheritance. You don't have that heavenly life. It just means you've not been truly born again. You need to repent and believe. And don't listen to those who tell you otherwise. Verse 6, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God has been kindled. It's just waiting. Don't listen, therefore, and don't join the sons of disobedience. Same term. You need to remember in Christ who you are now. What should you do? Verse seven. He says, therefore, do not be partakers with them for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. There it is again. Just become who you are. Live according to your new identity. What is your new identity in Christ? You're children of light. That's who you are because of him. And therefore, because of that, you should walk in the light. So come out of the darkness. If you stumble, you trip into the darkness. will quickly repent and return. It says in verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Shine the light on your sin. Turn away from it. Go one step further. Kill it kill the sin that remains in your flesh that you might not suffer in the darkness any longer and dishonor the savior who died to bring you into the light. This is all part of our war against sin. And so far we've covered, you can go back to Colossians three again, we've covered in killing sin, the what and the why, what sins you must kill, why you must kill sin. Let's just finish up now by adding a few words on the how. How exactly do you go about killing your sin? It's something we've learned, but it's worth, it is very much worth repeating. So number three, how you must kill sin. How you must kill sin. You know, it's one thing to convict Christians of their need to grow and change and put away their sin. It's another thing to tell them how you see this problem among many parents and even some pastors that they give repeated calls to righteousness and holiness, repeated demands. You need to obey God, but they don't tell people how they give no guidance on how to do this and understand the demand to live righteously, the demand to live righteously does not come about by merely demanding that people live righteously. We need more help because the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. and when most people look at a passage like this on sexual morality, they might be convicted to change a few things in their life that 's good but i 'll tell you how most respond at first they, they focus on their sinful deeds, whether it 's outright. Adultery or pornography, impure behavior, or letting the mind wander in lust. They focus on their deeds. Now, of course, you have to stop the deeds, but this is their only focus. And then to try and fight their sinful deeds, naturally that the mind of man gravitates for help to what? To the law. They say, you know, I've got a problem here. You know what I need? I need some rules. I need some regulations to keep me in check. And, you know, I think so do the people around me. So they start trying to regulate righteousness. No more rated R movies. No more skirts above the knee. No more going swimming with members of the opposite sex. We've got to fight impurity, right? The word for this is legalism. But don't forget, Paul just finished tearing legalism apart at the end of Colossians 2. Because that's what some people in Colossae were trying to do In an effort to be holy. That's not the way. Let's just look back at Colossians 2.20. Do you remember this? He says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. He says, these, matters, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Do you see all that? You know, adding more rules and restrictions and laws is not the answer. It's of no value in putting your flesh in check. And also starving the body, depraving the body, or rather depriving the body through ascetic discipline. It just, it has no power to stop your sin, which comes from your heart. You can't reach the heart through your body. You know, man's solutions of legalism and asceticism, we've learned, that they, they just do nothing to deal with the root of sin, which is inside of our nature. And so, okay then, what is the way to kill sin or how do you then kill sin? Well, as we're learning here, our, our ethics come out of our position in Christ. We're new creatures. We're dead to sin. We're alive in God. This means in practice, the way we're going to live differently is because we have new hearts and minds that are given new values, new beliefs, and new desires. Now, salvation is, God gives you a new heart and he plants within new desires that weren't there before. Desires for righteousness and we come to value what God values. So think, when you become a Christian, just instantaneously, if you're saved, what are some things you just, you believe now that you didn't believe before? Well, you fully believe there's a God in heaven. He's our maker. He determines right and wrong. He has a will. His will is perfect. That will includes abstaining from all sexual morality. And you know what? Now, I agree. I used to not agree with that, but this is now what I believe. This is what I value. Where'd that come from? What came from? New birth. But now we believe that God's ways are best. He gives us a new heart to value what he values. And so these desires, they they start off small. You might say in sapling form. But as you now feed and nourish and build that the new desires he has given you by the power of the Spirit, well they'll grow and you'll bear the fruit of the Spirit. You'll be led into righteous behavior. In practice, yes, of course there's a negative side to it where you you go after your specific sins, you, you put them off. But now you should understand the real battle is not just against our deeds, but our desires. It's not enough to address your your sinful actions. You have to deal with the desires that keep feeding them. And to kill the enemy, then, you have to cut off its supply lines. You Strike anywhere you can as you're battling sin, but aim for the head. If a rattlesnake was charging you, it's just bent on striking you, well, you'll strike it anywhere you can, but aim for the head. You have to get to the source of sin, which seeks To kill you. And with sexual sin, what have you learned? That the deepest root is this greed, which amounts to idolatry. You have a greed problem and a worship problem. I bet you've never thought of the answer to your sexual sin in those terms before, which is maybe why. Maybe you haven't gotten anywhere. But in greed, you want more than God has given, you want to have more than what God has provided. In idolatry, you're willing to sin to get it. And so that means you ultimately serve yourself. But these are the sinful heart desires you have and I still have that we must repent of, identify, repent of, crucify, and and put to death these desires. Lay the axe at the root of the tree. And then comes the positive side that while starving and attacking the root desires of the heart that lead to sin, You must also feed and nourish the new desires of the spirit. You have to promote the new desires God has given to you. In the case of sexual sin, this means replacing that desire to have more with contentment. You replace it with contentment. You put on contentment. Whether you're married or single, whatever your station in life, this is the recognition that God has provided For your needs according to his perfect will, his provision is good. Stop taking for granted what he has given to you. In fact, you should thank him for what he's richly supplied. In fact, when you start thanking him, instead of being controlled by this desire to always want more, you turn from an idolater into a worshiper because you're thanking him for what he's provided. All this comes about by. Renewing the mind by believing God's truth. You know, you say to yourself, there, there is a God in heaven. He is in control. He's sovereign. He's good. He's directing my steps. His path is best. I just need to trust him. He's given me what he knows I need right now. And his greatest goal in my life is not just my health, wealth, or happiness. He's working me to Christ likeness. That's his plan for my life. That is best. That's why I need to get on board. Anything more I want, well, I'm going to lay those requests at his feet in prayer. But ultimately, he's enough. Christ is enough to satisfy my soul. What I really need more of is just Christ in my life. This is the way. God in his grace has already given us salvation. He's already worked his salvation in us. And our job now is to work it out. To live it out. And the outworking of salvation turns on the gears of the heart and the mind. To kill your sin, you have to focus on the battle within. Not just with your deeds, but with your desires. Work on being renewed in the inner man. That your new heavenly behavior might just naturally flow out of you. Lord has already done so much for us. He sent Jesus to die for us. To save us eternally. And now he's made us his witnesses. He's put us under his protection. So you could almost say Christianity. It's a type of witness protection program. It comes complete with a new identity. That in Christ your old self is truly dead and gone. And you have really risen to new life. Christ is our life. Our eternal spiritual heavenly life is in christ and if you know him that life is in you and so now if you want to change and you want to see that life come out well we'll say what we said last time keep seeking the things above where christ is seated at the right hand of god and set your mind on things above not on the things that are on earth let's pray Our God in heaven, you are our God who sits in the heavens and does as he pleases. You made this world, you made it perfect. But we as your people have fallen short. Sin entered this world through our own rebellion and brought the curse, the sting of of death and suffering. We become corrupt in our own natures such that it is now in our nature to go against you. We, We once all lived in this darkness and had no hope in the world. But we need to always remember what you did for us in your mercy and love. You sent a Savior, Christ Jesus, God, man in flesh, to live and to die for us, to rise again. That we might be entirely forgiven. We might be declared righteous. That we might have a heavenly inheritance of those who know Christ and trust him. This is what they have right now. But Lord, in your will, you leave us. You save us, but then leave us. We're not yet glorified. That glory will be revealed, we've learned, but. Not yet. In the meantime, you, you give us your spirit because you are glorified when, when we put away the old and live according to the new. When as we're renewed in our minds, we, we, this heavenly life you've given to us just comes out on earth. The whole world might see who you are and, and the gospel you give in Christ. I pray you transform us. You continue to renew us even this morning as you fill our minds with truth. Even this time in scripture functions to set our mind on things above We need this. We need your word to teach us, guide us, equip us. We might figure out what this Christian life is all about. We do love you, Lord. We want to strive after you. Not that we might become, but because you've already made us righteous in Christ. But how can we not want to give our whole lives now on the altar as a sacrifice of praise to the one who did all this for us? So keep working your will in us. Keep helping us to renew our minds that we might be fully conformed to Christ's image. Grow us into his image.